No doubt many of my listeners are familiar with the Marvel Cinematic Universe. You might even be fans, as I am. Regardless of whether you've only had a little exposure to it or you've been fully indoctrinated, chances are you know about T'Challa, superhero alias the Black Panther, who is the ruler of the fictional African kingdom known as Wakanda. This civilization, hidden deep within the heart of the continent, boasts advanced technology and scientific knowledge, the like of which can scarcely be understood by the outside world. While Wakanda itself is a work of fiction, the brainchild of Marvel Comics legends Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, which premiered in issue number 52 of Fantastic Four in July of 1966, it's based on an actual place. That's right, the real Wakanda was actually located in West Africa, and for almost nine centuries maintained its power with little to no hindrance. This allowed it to flourish, creating some of the most sophisticated art and architecture ever produced on the continent. When was the Kingdom of Benin established? What were its greatest achievements? And what finally brought it down? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and you might want to yibambe, hold fast for this episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. When one thinks of civilizations in Africa, no doubt Egypt is one of the first that comes to mind. After all, it lasted for some 30 centuries, during which time it produced some of the greatest architectural and cultural marvels the world has ever seen. But of course, there were several other great societies and empires that thrived during and after that mighty empire's fall. In sub-Saharan Africa, for example, there was Timbuktu, the cosmopolitan center of the medieval Mali Empire, ruled over by the fabulously wealthy Mansa Musa. Then there was the Songhai Empire that followed, which would become one of the largest states in African history, incorporating parts of present-day Niger, Mauritania, Burkina Faso, Senegal, Mali, the Gambia, Guinea, Algeria, and the Côte d'Ivoire. While these diverse societies were all impressive in their own right, even they paled in comparison to the subject of today's episode, whose cultural and artistic legacy has been compared to that of the ancient Greeks in Europe. But for all its eventual greatness, the Benin Kingdom was born out of some truly humble beginnings, the roots of which date back several centuries before its foundation. The heavily forested area, overgrown with lush greenery and an abundance of wildlife, is the ancestral home of the Edo people of what's now southern Nigeria. By the first century BC, the Edo had organized into a partially agrarian society that still relied heavily on hunting and gathering. By around AD 500, it had evolved into an almost completely agrarian society, with the first permanent settlements being established around that time, and also adopted iron for tools and other uses. According to their oral traditions, the Edo were ruled by Ogisos, literally kings of the sky, and their homeland was known as Igodo Migodo, after the first of these rulers, whose name was Igodo. Some 36 Ogisos are accounted for in said oral traditions, the last of whom was Owodo. After a reign plagued with problems and a purported scandal in the royal court, the details of which are scant, the Edo people sought new leadership from a neighboring kingdom. It would come in the form of a prince named Eweka, who was crowned the first Oba, king, of what would go down in history as the Benin Kingdom sometime in the 11th century. In the three centuries following its establishment, Benin became a thriving city-state, establishing trade with its neighbors and fending off those who sought to attack it. But the kingdom's location proved both strategic and convenient, for the narrow path through the rainforest that led to and from it proved easy to defend, especially in the thick overgrowth. With little competition, this allowed them to grow with few to no impediments. By the 15th century, they had amassed so much wealth through trade that the then monarch, Oba Eware, expanded the kingdom's boundaries and greatly improved its capital city, Edo, present-day Benin City, by undertaking several civic-building projects. 
Perhaps the most ambitious of these projects was the raising of the Walls of Benin, a series of earthworks consisting of alternating dikes and ditches, known as Ia in the Edo language. They were constructed gradually with those surrounding the city being raised first, while those in the suburbs were built later. Historians believe that they were constructed between the 13th and 15th centuries, with much of the later walls being built during Ewari's reign. These walls were intended to keep hostiles at bay, and protected both the capital and its environs from the threat of invasion from other nations. The first description in European sources is attributed to the Portuguese explorer Duarte Pacheco Pereira, who visited the city in around 1500. This city is about a league long from gate to gate, he wrote. It has no wall, but is surrounded by a large moat, very wide and deep, which suffices for its defense. About a century later, a Dutch explorer named Dirk Reuters gave his own account complete with illustrations. In return for such civic projects, the king's subjects were expected to reaffirm their loyalty through various rituals. Most notable of these was the practice of human sacrifice, in which the victims, convicted criminals, were ritualistically offered up to both the Oba and gods to strengthen and bless the empire. Thus the Benin Kingdom entered its golden age, one that would last for 400 years. At its height, the arts flourished, and Benin's skilled artisans soon garnered reputations not just in neighboring lands and kingdoms, but in Europe as well. When trade with Portugal began in the late 15th and early 16th centuries, one of the hottest commodities to come out of Benin were the various bas-relief sculptures, plaques, and life-size busts fashioned out of such rare materials as wood, brass, ivory, and above all, bronze. When the Portuguese brought these trinkets back to Europe, people could scarcely believe that such intricate and sophisticated works of art were created by a quote-unquote primitive African culture. The demand, however, continued to rise, with the Portuguese trading cloth, metals, and manufactured goods for Benin's rich supplies of gold, spices, ivory, and later on, slaves. Yes, despite the beautiful, dazzling things it created, the Benin Kingdom was one of the biggest and most important contributors to the notorious West African slave trade that emerged in the 17th and 18th centuries. As slave labor played an integral part in the British Empire as well as the Americas and other powers at the time, traders from both Europe and the New World turned to Africa for fresh supplies of human cargo to perform the most laborious of tasks they themselves wouldn't do. To fulfill this demand, the Oba would regularly send his soldiers into the rainforests to capture men, women, and children from rival peoples, and trade or sell them to Europeans and Americans for precious commodities in exchange. Indeed, this proved a lucrative business for Benin, which profited greatly from it, and therefore increased its wealth. For centuries, the kingdom prospered, as proven by the amazing creative output that emerged in that time. Magnificent works of art, including wood, bronze, and ivory likenesses of kings, mythological entities, and scenes of everyday life are now considered to be some of the greatest ever produced in Africa. But then, in the 19th century, Benin's power and influence began to wane. After years of a steady monarchy, members of the royal family began vying for power and control over the throne and the empire. Such squabbles led to an outbreak of civil wars that further weakened the government. Its economy was dealt a crushing blow, and with European powers dividing the continent for their own colonial ambitions, it wasn't long before said foreign interest arrived at Benin's doorstep. In 1897, the British arrived, intent on gaining access to the kingdom's vast trade network. From their perspective, the Benin Kingdom was the missing link in a series of African holdings that stretched across the continent. In addition, they longed to beat out their European rivals to the spoils of Africa's interior, which was rich in resources that would be of use to them. Shortly after their arrival, they burned Edo to the ground before swiftly incorporating the kingdom into the larger territory of British Nigeria. After nearly nine centuries, Benin was no more. It wasn't until 1960, when Nigeria received its independence from Britain, that the land that comprised the former empire was quote-unquote returned, so to speak, back to African authority. 
Today, Edo, now known as Benin City, is a thriving metropolis in southern Nigeria and serves as the capital of the aptly named Edo State, though it bears little physical resemblance to the capital city in its glory days. In addition, much of the famous bronzes, some 900 of them, were confiscated by the British after their siege of the city and are now housed in the British Museum in London. To this day, ownership over the bronzes continues to be hotly debated and contested, with the British government adamantly stating that they quote-unquote properly reside in the aforementioned museum. As to be expected, Nigeria continues to lay claim to them, as they were fashioned on her soil by one of the greatest sovereign states in Africa's long and rich history. Will these stunning works of art ever be returned to their rightful owner? It's hard to say. But regardless of where you stand on the issue, they should be seen and enjoyed by the world as a testament to the skilled craftspeople and artisans who fashion them, for they represent the absolute height of human achievement and cultural sophistication. That's all for now. Thanks for listening. I can hardly believe that 2021's winding down at last. Where did the year go? It's frightening how fast the time goes nowadays. There's only one more episode left for the year, but I do so hope you'll stick around to check it out. If you enjoyed this podcast and wish to support me to ensure continued content, please do consider becoming a monthly supporter. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button. You'll then be redirected to three monthly support plans that fit any budget. Listening and sharing also help me in a big way, so please do so on all streaming platforms. That being said, a very Merry Christmas to all of those who celebrate it, and I'll see you here next Thursday on the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you then.